Welcome to Formula Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And Cindy, we're going to talk about something that you don't like at all, right? <laughs> La cuisine française. My favorite. Absolute favorite. So excited that this is our topic today. Pe- people come into, uh, you know, that restaurant where you're cooking all the time. And one of the first things I'll get as a question from them is, why do you have a thousand labels of French wine in the list? <laughs> Like be, because her cooking is very French. Exactly. So we thought it would be useful to talk about one French food and its evolution, and uh, especially you know, so like heroes along the way, but also what the other side of French cooking is. You know, not just the famous French male chefs, but cuisine de grandmère, you know, grandmother's mm-hmm. cooking. Mm-hmm. Uh, this the stuff that honestly, I think this is this is a pretty good divide between you and I in France, isn't it? You know, I'm going to disagree with you because I love the cooking of of uh, of the ladies, and um, I mean, I love all French cooking, and and I particularly love the opportunities we've had, especially to be in uh, people's homes in France and get to eat with uh, winemakers and um, taste their local cooking and. So I, I like all food of France. Um, I think it is a beautiful cooking and it, and it really resonates with me as a chef and it is truly the foundation of my cooking. And, and that's, that, that's not only because um, it reminds me a bit of my own mother's cooking, although in no way French, um, I always found great comfort in my mother and my grandmother's cooking. So I do love that food, Tony. From when you first started learning about French cooking, what were the first names that popped up, the uh, the great French chefs? Well, ironically, one of the very first cookbooks um, that I got was, uh, well, one was George Blanc's, and um, that was because of Marcelo Vasquez, and uh, he had the book, and um, we would, he and I would sit down, we only had 35 seats in the restaurant, in his restaurant, and we would sit down, he and I, oftentimes after service, we had a, a small private dining room. Um, we were in an inn in Charleston, just off the harbor in the Vendue Inn. And um, the small private dining room was really like someone's dining room in their house. Uh, the, the owner of the inn had a tremendous amount of antiques. So this room was really pretty. Anyway, Marcelo and I would sit there and, you know, maybe have a glass of wine and taste some wine that he wanted to try or something or have a bite to eat. But we would often look through cookbooks together, which was really a time that was very special for me, particularly because I was such a young uh, chef and learning so much from him. So Georges Blanc was one of my first and Michel Garrard, my father gave me. Um, and of course, that those two men mean so much to me and have influenced me so much in my life. And both are my mentors, obviously. Um, so and to this day, I live to eat Michel Gerard's food. I mean, I cannot wait for the moment that I can get back to Michel Gerard. Yeah, it's just interesting to think that, you know, how, how many years ago was it that you got that first uh, that first book, the Georges Blanc? Mm-hmm. I was twenty six years old, so thirty years ago, and 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 that that was. You know, I still played a little bit like that. That influenced so many of my thoughts. But you know, what it comes down to is, you know, with with classic French cooking, you know, Escoffier is the person that defined it, and he defined it by by writing Le Guide, uh, what we call Le Guide, and he wrote Le Guide in 1903, 
uh, or it was published in 1903. And he was born in 1846. So, and he passed away in 1935, uh, Auguste Scoffier. And it's funny because the book says modern cooking. And of course it was at that time, what he, he, his approach with Laguide and we, and we use this book, we use this book at school. It's, it's sort of like the Bible of cooking and um, of French cooking. And he wrote it with the intention that he would be writing down all of his recipes for all these new things he had started to do because of the change of the way that he was cooking, which was that restaurants were being opened and great chefs were cooking in them in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And people were eating in these restaurants after church and and also on Sunday because oftentimes their cooks were off if they had cooks in their homes um, and also going to these restaurants after the theater to eat. And um, it was a big thing also about being seen and, and, and for the first time in people's lives, really, you know, having this sort of show place for themselves and also seeing each other's clothing. Um, so they actually designed restaurants around the way that ladies were dressing um, to give them, you know, distance and all that they needed for their dresses. Uh, but really what he was doing was documenting his own work that, that had happened uh, because of the advent of these restaurants. And of course he opened, um, the Savoy in London, which was a, you know, one of the best hotels and restaurants in the in the world at the time. Wasn't he the chef at the, the Ritz in Paris as yes. well? Yes. Wasn't that the latter part of his career? Yes, exactly. And Cesar Ritz was one of his partners. So obviously that was how they decided to do the Ritz in Paris. And, you know, with his with his defin- defining classic French cooking through the book, you know, he he, he says you know, I want to I want to do my new recipes, but I realize that I have to honor the history of our cooking and put all these things down on paper. Uh, and also, I also as a chef, it was fascinating to read his his uh, introduction to this cookbook because I, I don't think I've ever actually read the introduction. I only read have read the recipes and obviously to learn over year over the years. And so to sit down at this time in my career and read what he wrote is fascinating because his comment was. People uh, are constantly trying to outdo each other in these restaurant situations when, you know, if let's say they're entertaining 12 people or something and the ladies were saying, you have to give me something new. I, I want to be different from some the other people that you're cooking for. And so the chef chef was constantly being challenged to come up with new dishes. And uh, I completely understand that thought process. It was just really interesting to hear that a man from, you know, the early 1900s, a chef was talking about being, you know, I have to be, uh, you know, doing something new and keeping the, the guests excited about what the cooking that we're doing and um, new meaning combinations of food or, or flavors or whatever, and um, not reinventing the wheel, but, you know, working on those classic principles. So it's, it's, it, it was an interesting time. And thank goodness that he did document because really, also, the big change prior to his cooking was uh, the cooking of Karem. And Karem was called the king of cooks and the cook of kings. And his he was doing all these elaborate you know, displays of cooking and uh, you know, architectural pieces on these beautiful displays for kings. And you know, so, so Escoffier's attempt was also to you know, show that what the new cooking was was very different because you're now entertaining in restaurants rather than in your castle or your chateau. Yeah, so so Karem was the chef for castles. Mm-hmm. Escoffier was the first real, you know, fancy hotel restaurant chef of mm-hmm. note in France. 
And 120 years later, socially in the United States, we're still doing the same things. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're socially doing the same things, which is which is kind of wild. And uh, wanting to have dishes reinvented for them and all that sort of business. Um, and it's interesting along the way, obviously, uh, you know, whether it's purely working class or otherwise, the... You know the, the the cooking, the regional cooking from a lot of France. It's interesting that of of the great French chefs, Paul Bocuse is the one um, that that strikes me or hits that that note for me. And as a, a boy from Lyon, you know he, his affection for the the cooking of that area is huge, and it shows up in in elevated variations of those dishes in some of his food. Um, even later in his career, he's writing books about these are the like the 20 archetypal regional French dishes that you have to master. Exactly. You know, whether it's what lentils with salt pork or, you know, escargot bourguignon or, or you know, that, and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, the chicken and the pig's bladder. I mean, that is a dish to aspire to for any chef to be able to achieve that dish. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, and his dishes with morels. That whole generation, those guys after uh, Escoffier and then after World War II, and Pont, I guess, was the guy who was holding on to real cooking, and he schooled so many of of that next great generation, the guys you're talking about. So who who's in that group? Uh, Toiro, uh the Toiro, the Bra, Michel Bra. The brothers, yeah. Yeah, uh, of course, Michel Gerard. About peak, for sure. It's kind of wild to think. How many Michelin stars do you figure came out of that kitchen over the next twenty years? Oh my gosh! I mean, how many so, three-star chefs? So many, and and it's amazing because. Uh, between between Point and uh, La Mer Brasière, the 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 sort of mother of of cooking in, in that same region. Well, that's why well, that's Bocuse worked for her too. So it, it's it's amazing. You have you know uh, the Trois brothers. You have Michel Bras. You have um, uh, Robichon. Um, you know so many, and Michel Garrard, who we talked about earlier. You have so many great chefs coming from uh, both of their kitchens, and uh, it, it's it's an amazing influence that Point and uh, Brasier had. Um, she was, and she was the first uh, two, three-starred Michelin chef ever. It was a woman. I mean, it's just so crazy exciting. And uh, her restaurant, by the way, is still open. Of course, she passed away a long time ago, but um, her restaurant is still open in Lyon, and uh, I, I will go there one day. So many, many of these chefs are, are folks that grew up in the business. When you think of Georges Blanc, in the town where he is now, uh, where he has several restaurants, Vona, uh, his family had a, a, you know, a small auberge that he grew up in, and then they shipped him off. You know, the pathway was to ship him off to Point as an apprentice mm -hmm. to actually learn something. But I mean, that's he's he was from a generation of uh, really marvelous cooks, a long line of women doing that. It's just funny that the 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 French chef, the male French chef, you know, very chauvinistic is what we get in our head. And I guess my my big point is 
that so much of what's important of that cooking, so much of the soul of it, it, it came from the fairer sex, not from uh, mm-hmm. my lot. Yeah, it, it and and I feel like so few people know that. You know, I I I feel like because the 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 sons have done so well and gotten their Michelin stars, and maybe the the mothers, you know, were cooking more for the people stopping at the hotel or the inns, I guess uh, you would say, or the auberge. Yeah. And, um, exactly. you know, you, they just didn't get the credit for it. But yet we all know the foundation of cooking is usually with the mother, uh, you know, in the home and, and, and apparently, obviously in these restaurants. So it's these kids, these gentlemen grew up in these situations. And just like I'm thankful for my parents and my family's background in food, I'm sure they're very thankful for what their, their mothers did for them. Uh, uh, Daniel Bouyou also moving into the present day, uh, his mother, uh, fed like 30 people every day, um, at lunch because they had a mill and these folks were coming in, you know, workers were coming into the home. I mean, imagine that <laughs> I can't even imagine that. So, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's a long history. It's a good history. You, you recall, I spent a little bit of time in the hospital in France. Thinking about yes. cooking, cooking for a crowd, right? And and God bless everyone in healthcare, including the people that cook in healthcare. But maybe that the quality of the cooking is not always the strong suit. In a hospital, you mean? Yeah. And I think you'll recall me telling you that the food was good. <laughs> you know, I was in a hospital in Reims, and and the food was good. Like you, you got proper bread with each meal. Uh, every night you had soup, fresh soup, that was made from real things, <laughs> like it's cold out, it's pumpkin soup, it's mm-hmm. made with real stock, it was terrific. You know, you, you did get a piece of cheese <laughs> with, uh, you know, and on the cardiac ward, that's kind of funny, but yeah. that, that that was notable, <laughs> but that there were no choices. So I have a feeling that was a little bit like uh, maybe Daniel Beaulieu's mom's was, was cooking for the mill workers, you know? Like mm-hmm. someone's running the kitchen, they're cooking what they're cooking, it's gonna be good, no fooling around, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It's there's, healthy. There's no modifications, you're not changing things, you know, then, and, uh, but I got very tasty, solid, appropriately seasoned, you know, cooking that was incredibly comforting at a rotten time. Yeah. I, I, I was so thankful that you, when you said that, because obviously it was horrible that you had to go through that in a, in a foreign country. Thank God it was France where you had such amazing healthcare. Uh, but yeah, for you to be in that situation, to be like, the food is great. I'm like, Oh, there's some silver lining here. Thank goodness for that. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's amazing. But not surprising in the end <laughs> in France. <laughs> they have their priorities straight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah cook, cooking for that big group. I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a cultural tradition when you think of, uh, you know, the, the traveler. It, it's easy to imagine like early motor cars, you know, the early Michelin guide, people going on the, the route N7 or the route uh, where La Bougraviere is or the N6 or, you know, whatever that whatever the old national routes before the auto routes, those, those outposts, you know, every, you know, 100 kilometers or so that seem to pop up along there, there's always like one notable 
uh, long-time restaurant, and you know that's how they began. Mm-hmm. So, Cindy, one, one last uh, a question while we're on this topic. You are uh, fantasized for a second. And it, it, it's not a situation where you're doing French-slash-fantasy cooking with whatever ingredients. It's November, and you are cooking for 50 people by yourself at a roadside <laughs> inn. Yes. Uh, in, in France, with no refrigeration. Mm-hmm. What oh. are you cooking? Go. What the, what, uh, <laughs> There's the real <laughs> chef's challenge. How did we have to end up with no refrigeration? Um, well, then it's going to be confit uh, because, uh, uh, or something preserved, um, but or something freshly slaughtered, uh, quite frankly. Let's go with freshly slaughtered chicken. Some of the best chicken in the world. And uh, I would... Uh, Definitely roast it. Oh, it's in November, so it's just the beginning of truffles. So I would I would uh, slip some truffles underneath the skin, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and 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 they probably would have found them. So they wouldn't have been you know they wouldn't have cost anything. Uh, so it, it would have been you know truffles under the skin and and roasting beautifully and uh, having a little bit of a deglazing of that roasting pan and adding some of your great fond, uh, which is stock uh, with bones and meat in it. Um, and deglazing with some great chicken stock and adding a little bit of a uh, tiny bit of roux, butter and flour used as a thickening agent. Uh, deglazing um, also with a little bit of white wine from the region because it's chicken and finishing with cream or creme fraiche and a uh, little bit of uh, button mushroom sauteed as well or some other sort of mushroom that's traditional to that region and just have some really gorgeous cream deglazing tasty pan sauce that has mushrooms in it as well as putting the truffle under the skin and probably adding a little bit of sliced truffle, not probably adding a little truffle slices to finish. Now, if I didn't use the truffles, um, I might do an expensive auberge. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. And potato puree. That's the other thing you need. You need really good, silky, sexy potato puree. That's got a lot of local butter in it and local cream. That would be so delicious. That's my answer. <laughs> you only Are know you one laughing? Way. <laughs> yeah, of course I'm laughing. You only know one way. When we come back on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine, Cindy Wolf will do her spa cuisine version of simple country <laughs> cooking on a budget on WIPR. <laughs> Welcome back to Formula Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And we're talking French food and wine, something near and dear to both of our hearts, but especially Cindy over here. <laughs> and Cindy, you just, <laughs> you just um, did a beautiful rendition of what to do for a simple country meal on the fly. <laughs> <laughs> well, they would have had cream. They would have had truffles. Your instincts but, are your instincts. I understand. Yeah, you know it. You know. One of the things, too, is is uh, you're talking about November. Um, if I did did do something with, say, duck confit, 
uh, I think that that whole dish, the the sort of uh, Lyonnaise, where are we in Lyon region? You said Burgundy, didn't you? Um, sure. I think. Yeah. Uh, the Lyonnaise potatoes are one of my favorite things to make. And I love uh, because you would have had if you had duck confit, then you would have that incredible tasting fat from the confit being processed. I don't think that's the right word, but anyway. Um, and uh, so, and if you do Lyonnaise potatoes, you're caramelizing these gorgeous onions and sort of uh, almost like a julienne of onion caramelized in the fat. And then you can put on a good steel or cast iron pan, get it, get it nice and hot, not crazy hot, but nice and hot. Put that duck uh, fat in there and then do thin slices of potato. One of my favorite things is to slice the potatoes as I'm going right into that fat. That is a tiny bit dangerous, but um, if you're a good cook, you can do it. And so that fat is really nice and hot in the pan and it's a heavy duty pan. It can handle any process. So you're going in, you're doing like uh, using a mandolin, you know, a nice thin potato slice, put them in, put them in, sort of like make a flour layers, layers and do like two layers. And uh, I usually flip it. Be careful. Uh, the fat will get you salt and pepper it and a pot. Well, actually you don't have to flip it. You can go uh, into the oven like that if you want, or you can flip it and get both sides really nice and caramelized. Um, and then add the potato, uh, excuse me, and then add the onions uh, to the dish. And that with confit is just, oh, and you could put a little bit of fresh rosemary in there if you wanted right at the end. And nice pepper, good, good salt. Oh my gosh. And 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 then if you have your duck reduction, um, you know, you've made stock, obviously you're using the livers, you're using, you know, a little bit of the blood, you're using some of the, the offal from it um, and making a gorgeous duck stock. I mean, that, what a great sauce. Um, and that, that also comes to something I would like to talk about just briefly, but, you know, I know you want, you're, you're, you're thinking dishes specifically, but I do think we should talk about stock. Well, that's stock is one of the backbone pieces of French cooking so that we can begin with that. But I but I want to get to just archetypal French dishes from sure. around uh, different parts of France, though French cuisine is pretty uh, homogeneous, that it, it still has big regional influences. Mm -hmm. So just the, the idea of making any stock, you, you were talking about duck stock, uh, right. Probably the most typical one that people will make will be chicken stock, and that's or veal stock, right? Veal stock. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, just to quote Escoffier, stock is everything in cooking. Without it, nothing can be done. And that is in reference to French cooking, of course. Um, so I totally agree. I mean, if we didn't have stock to make, so one of my favorite things to make as a chef is stock, is a sauce. Um, from stock, but from cream, whatever. But I mean, we have to have stock. So uh, a, a white veal stock can be very important and a brown veal stock is extremely important because the five mother sauces are Espanol, Velute, Bechamel, Tomato, and Hollandaise. So those are the foundation sauces of all French cooking. And from those sauces come other sauces. So that's why they're called the mothers, mother sauces. <clears throat> but with a stock, if you're making a brown stock, you, you know, just very quickly, uh, I'm going to go through it. So you brown the bones. Um, one of the enemies of an excellent stock is fat. So you're always trying to remove, not trying, you want to remove all the fat from the process. And you do that in a couple of different ways. So when you brown the bones, you lift the bones out of the fat and uh, make sure, you know, there's as little as possible. Uh, when you go to make your stock, you always start with cold water. Uh, 
uh, it allows the um, albumin to be released from the bones and it rises to the top of the stock in the form of scum. And when I was just just for fun, going through Escoffier's principles of making a stock uh, to remind myself, you know, he makes a comment that at some point he actually would even add cold, more cold water to the stock just to make sure that it was able to release uh, all of that albumin from the bones. And um, that that lends to clarity. So if you want to make something like a consomme, which is a clear stock, uh, and a clarified stock. So you have to start with a clear stock that has no fat, and then you clarify it with uh, meat and mirepoix or meat and vegetables and, and egg whites. Um, you have to have a clear stock. So once all that uh, scum rises to the top and you skimmed it off, uh, you also want to skim off all the fat at the same time, which you will be doing. And then you bring it down once it comes up to a boil and you've, you've handled that. Now you can add, quite frankly, Escoffier says, now you can add the mirepoix now you can add your mirip your aromatics, which I have always added my mirepoix from the very beginning. So that was really, I had not ever remembered reading that before or learning that in school. We always put mirepoix in with the bones. Um, so I think that's, I think that just gives it more room for those, for the, you know, that, that, that scum to rise to the top. And then you turn it down to the lowest simmer. It should be one bubble bursting every second. And that's how slow you simmer it. Scoffier says five hours. We run ours overnight. We, we do a 12, 13 hour run on our stock and then we strain it. And then we would begin the reducing process. So it's a, it's a two to three day process to make our sauces. So what, what kind of sauces? I'm sure the listeners are thinking, what, what do I use all this stock for? I mean, okay. and what, well, what a, how, how does one make a sauce from stock? Right. So there are two ways. Either you can thicken it through natural reduction, which is what I just you know talked about. So once you've strained your stock and you put it in a big pot and you let it reduce down. Or uh, Espanol, one of the mother sauces, has a, a roux in it. So you can add a little bit of flour and butter used as a thickening agent. And by the way, you always add a cold roux to a hot liquid. So once you make your roux, you need to refrigerate it and, and bring the temperature down. Um, and for, uh, for Espanol, you can use a blonde or a little bit, little bit more towards brown roux. Um, so you can go either way. I, it is very traditionally French to use a roux and that is a bit old fashioned. You know, I would say during probably the fifties and sixties, sixties into the seventies, that was when they, the chefs started doing natural reductions rather than, and, and, and there was a, when I was in culinary school in the 1980s, there was a trend towards using arrowroot. Uh, as a thickening, thickening agent. I have never been fond of that, so I have never worked that way, but that is a possibility as well. Uh, it's not it's definitely, nice. It's not Yeah, nice. it's definitely like a nice... What, what did you say? <laughs> I said it's just not nice. <laughs> I don't like it, yeah. So it's just either idea, either so do natural like reduction... <laughs> Either do a natural reduction or or add a roux. Um, and uh, this is me and, with and, disdain. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things about uh, your stock is that it's not just for sauces; it's also for making soups. So um, you're not always reducing it down. Um, if I made like I like I made uh, Sea Island white rice pea uh, soup the other day, yesterday, and I used a very very good chicken and veal stock that was nice and rich, but it was not. It was only reduced for you know maybe maybe an hour. Um, from you know, to, make, we make, to make a sauce, you're talking about a volume, reducing oh. the volume. Once the stock is made, and, and the way, if the stock is made, it's what probably 40, 50 percent of the original water, right? Yeah, I go from 35 gallons of 
you know, I have a braising pan, which is a huge kettle. And then I have a huge stainless steel stock pot that I put on the stove. So when we run, we run both vessels and that's 35 to 40 gallons of bones and liquid. And then that's that, that when we strain that out, we end up with three tall stock pots. What is that? That's probably 15 gallons. We end up with about 15 gallons of liquid when we're done. And we reduce that down to two gallons. So you, you 40, 45% is stock, mm. re- reduces just to stock. Right. And then it's down to and two then gallons. It's what probably, yeah, that. Yeah, we end up with two gallons of sauce. And that, even that. 10, 15% is what I was going to say. Yeah. And we use 120 pounds of chicken bones and 50 pounds of veal bones to run our stocks. So that also tells you the ratio because I put chicken bones in because I prefer the flavor of the chicken bones, but chicken bones are so tiny. They don't have very much gelatin in at all. You know this, if you've ever made chicken stock at home, you'll see the next day in the refrigerator when it's cold, it's like, oh, it's a little wiggly, but not really. It has some viscosity to it, but not that much. Um, But by adding the veal bones, which are leg bones, which are cut into like whatever they are, four or five inch pieces. um, uh, And you can use um, marrow bones as well, split beef marrow bones. Oh, that's that really gives you some beautiful gelatin in your stock. And if you really want to, uh, have some real volume, um, like, uh, then that's a good way to go too. But I don't always want that beef flavor in my stocks. That's why I don't always do it. But yeah, the veal bones, the veal leg bones, um, have so much marrow, uh, and gelatin that, uh, they really pump up the, uh, ability to have some sort of texture with your, your stock, which we need for a sauce. If you recall at uh, at positive, we made a little bit different house stock yeah. that I learned from, uh, a fellow in Spain who was, Roast, it was brown chicken and pig's feet to get all of that gelatin for, oh and gosh. the sweetness from the uh, pig's feet. Yeah, and that really produces really great viscosity, but that really alters the yeah. flavor. So you have oh, to yes, want that flavor. Light, light and, and literally sweet. Yeah, yeah, pig's feet are great. So, Cindy, let's let's talk with dishes with stock. What, mm-hmm. are, what are two dishes that you think of as important regional French dishes that are made with stock? Uh, well, beef bourguignon comes to mind immediately, um, which of course you're using a, 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 a red from that region, um, but you have to have excellent stock to make that because you are, and, and also you're using an off cut of beef to make it. So you want that whole process to break down the tough fibers of that piece of meat, make it nice and tender. And by the time you are done with that, you have one of the greatest sauces ever because it's sat so long cooking gently. You know, you have this great stock to start and now you're fortifying it with all the flavor from the meat, the beef that you're using to make the bourguignon, the mirepoix, the the wine and uh, whatever aromatics are going in there. Oh my gosh. So bourguignon is definitely one of those dishes where you really need a beautiful, beautiful stock. Um, I think my, my favorite bourguignon uh, is at uh, a, a restaurant that you know, Chez Guy in <laughs> Gervais-Chambertin. And they they marinate the, the beef and the wine for three hours and then they cook it for nine hours with uh, half red wine and half stock very concentrated stock mm-hmm. and uh, it's beef cheeks that they that they use oh, and that, that's so great. It's a tremendous version and the in the acid of the wine is part of what breaks down 
the the meat into something more tender, especially Charolais beef cheeks. There's zero fat to that. Right. Well, and that's that's a good point too, because often with some of those cuts of beef that you're using in that situation, you you don't have very much fat, which is, seems unusual. Tony, for the beef bourguignon, what wine would you drink with it? Well, I mean, as 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 we're talking about, you drink Burgundy, so mm-hmm. it's Pinot Noir, but it's definitely Pinot Noir from Burgundy, something gutsy or something with more power. Couldn't be most likely is what you want, or uh, a wine from Pomard. One of the better purchases is going to be from the village of Marcenay, um, which is a village just north of uh, Gevers-Chambertin, but not the same price tag. But uh, something big and gutsy. And you get good young vintages to 19, 18, 16. Uh, we'll all do well for you. And Cindy, I'm going to hit you up for that other one of our uh, stock-based dishes on the other side of our break on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine on WIPR. Welcome back to Foreman of Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And Cindy and I are talking French cooking, uh, both the fancy and the regional cooking, grandmother's cooking, cuisine de grand And we're in the middle of talking about the importance of stock and great dishes that, are, that, that stock is central to. So what's another one that you want to talk about, Cindy? I think Cocovin is such a traditional dish and so important. Um, of course, they used to use the spent birds uh, to make this dish. So you really had sort of something that was tough and uh, needed some attention. And the traditional garnish are little onions, lardon, which is nice, big, crunchy pieces of bacon, basically, and button mushrooms or champignons de Paris. So you have um, this bird that, that will take a while to cook, and um, you definitely need mirepoix in there to give aromatics, carrot, celery, and onion. Uh, the the wine, um, you need a white wine from, again, from that region. Uh, a good chicken stock. Now, for me, I would use chicken and veal, but I don't know that that would have necessarily been traditional. And I would use a brown chicken and veal. So I think what would have been more traditional was to use a white chicken stock. uh, But I prefer the flavor of the brown chicken and veal. And also, you are going to thicken this lightly, very lightly with a roux, which will, you know, one of the things about thickening with a roux is not only does it do its job of thickening a sauce, but it also lends a richness. It just, it just makes it that much richer, not in an overwhelming heavy way if you don't put too much roux in. Um, so I think and that, that that typical garnish is is so uh, sets off the dish so beautifully, especially if your lardon is just this incredible, uh, you know, if you have a pork belly and you're cutting your own lardon from that and you're using some of the best pieces from that um, because one end of the pork belly is has almost no meat in it and the other end um, close to the shoulder has a much bigger piece of meat in it. Cutting from that end will give you some really gorgeous lardon. You just want to saute them until they're beginning to brown and be crispy. Um, and, um, you know, you don't want them to be little rocks, but 
but you certainly don't want it to also be flabby or unbrown. Um, the mushrooms, with any time you work with mushrooms, um, you want to cook them to the point of caramelization. Again, that probably wouldn't have been traditional back in the day, but I think you will like it better. Uh, you could certainly do little small whole mushrooms, which I think would be super cute and wonderful. Um, and or you could do slices or quartered larger mushrooms. But whatever you do, let's get some, you know, a lot, all, almost all that water content out. Saute them in butter um, and adding them to that that uh, pan while you're making your coco van near the end is and the, and then the little onions you could use pearl onions you could use and what would might be fun is to use now that we have purple pearl they're so pretty uh, but it would be traditional to use a little white onion um, or I love cipollinis which are certainly not French but um, I love cipollinis and their flavor is so incredible um, and you can roast those in the oven. Uh, cut them out of their, their skins and add them to the cooking process close to the end as well. So let me take, let me take you backwards on a cooking timeline. So mm-hmm. first you season the chicken parts whole on the bone. Then you go into that hot, heavy pan. Right. Right. Brown, Brown off them that a chicken. little bit. Right. And then you braise it in stock and typically Carrots. a pretty good amount of wine, red wine from Burgundy again. Yeah. Um, and by it's by the way that I had a, a winemaker whose mom was telling me that the secret to making it properly was mm. to use some of the leaves from one of the barrels. Oh so, my gosh! Well, so the wine, huh. the wine with the with the live yeast cells. <laughs> wow! In in the is part of the braising liquid for oh. um, the chicken, but you but. Whether you have that or not, I was going to say, <laughs> you, you how many of us have that? Until, <laughs> un, until it's tender, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's begun to reduce a little bit, and then you would add your garnishes. Right. Anything else you would season that 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 sauce with once you, once once everything had cooked together for a while, and then you pulled the chicken and the garnishes. Actually, I, w- I wouldn't. You would reduce that that liquid or no? Right. You, you, you can, um, if you want to pull the meat, out, that's what we end up doing at the restaurant. We, we end up pulling the meat out, um, discarding the mirepoix, which we obviously eat for employee meal because we love it so much. Um, it's so delicious, but we do discard that typically. And, um, and then uh, reduce down that liquid and either you're doing a natural reduction with it. If you have the viscosity that you need, or you're adding a light root to it. Um, as far as seasoning, quite frankly, salt and pepper because I don't want thyme in there. I don't want rosemary would blow it out. I, there really isn't a need. It's, it's really about the wine, the chicken, and the stock, uh, and then those wonderful sort of garnishes, the, the mushroom, the lardon, and the uh, little onions. Yeah, I always find the mushrooms really important in the flavor there. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So what, what else is, a, is, a, is a, a regional classic that people you know, should take a shot at mastering? And if I could talk you into into Canel de Brochette as being that thing, mm. Um, mm. then mm-hmm. that that that's that's a bit of a project, though. It is, but it, it, if you have the tenacity to do it, I think that truly it is. It will be a triumph. It's almost it's 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 hard, much harder than making a souffle, but it's a little bit that like that gratification of making a souffle and having it rise perfectly and just being amazingly delicious that you're like, whoa, I just did that. Yes, I did. Um, with uh, Quenelle de Brochette, it's typically made from pike. Um, and you need a, a delicate white fish to make it. And egg whites, cream, 
salt and white pepper, which I cannot stand. So I would just bite the bullet and do black pepper or don't do any pepper if it bothers you. Um, but I, I don't see what the problem is. Um, but it's the process of, of making a force meat or almost like a mousse with the egg whites and the cream. And it is a process to get that perfect. So you have to, you have to put the fish through a, in a food processor and, and, and grind it. So when you're in the food processor, you're going to have to add the egg whites and the cream and the salt and the pepper. Now you could add a tiny bit of cognac to that. Uh, you don't want to really taste it, but it's nice to have that sort of low level of that, you know, Oh, what is that? But there it is. I don't know what it is, but it makes it really good. Um, you could also add a tiny, 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 tiny bit of tomato paste, like a teaspoon, um, which will give it a little bit of color. And then you have to pass it through a fine sieve. We use what we call bowl sieves. It's a, a sieve that will, it's round and it has a flat bottom. It will sit on top of a, a bowl. And then we use a, plastic bench scrape, um, which is like a little plastic, plastic spatula without a handle on it. Once you've made your force meat, pass it through, then you, then you, um, there's two ways you can do it. You can either poach it in a fish stock or a seafood stock, or you cook it in sauce American in a gratin dish in the oven. That's all I can say. <laughs> so sauce American is a cream sauce that has tarragon tomato paste that is made from lobster stock reduction. Yes, and the it is typically gratinade, which means it goes under a salamander or a broiler um, on pick. Uh, you know, also is the end of the process. So it's usually a little, you know, nice and brown and bubbly on top, and the and the sauce American. You know, one of the things you can do is add a little bit of um, whipped egg to that sauce American to lighten it up as well. Really, this dish is what brought on in the 60s and 70s the seafood sausage, you know, or the or the 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 in, like I said, the the little quenelles. Done no in end the, of in the seafood stock. sausage. Yeah, yeah, I really think that sort of started that idea because um, a lot of chefs used to make that. Tony, what wine would you serve with with quenelle de brochette? If the if the sauce is is strong, intense, um, the the lobster flavor. It's interesting because I think a pike is a river fish, and and the Loire and its tributaries through central France uh, also has a wine-growing region that I think is a natural partner for uh, the dish from those those products, and that's Vouvray, which some people may sort of chuckle and think, oh, an, an off-dry, an off-dry white, or you know, a little bit sweet white. Um, there are lots of forms of Vouvray. And there are drier ones. They're excellent producers, Huet, uh, H-U-E-T, or Foro, F-O-R-E-A-U. Really, really marvelous ones. Foro also makes a sparkling wine. Uh, the grape is Chenin Blanc in this area. And Chenin Blanc has a vibrant acidity, which I think you need for the dish. And, and just to cut through it, because there's plenty of richness. But there's a delicacy, too. And... Um, and and the floral nature to the uh, aromas and a citric nature to it, that uh, it that partners really nicely with those flavors. So the the last big question I think we have to to look at is, uh, why does French cooking still matter? Why, I mean, why do you? I mean, all these years later, and there's a whole lot in the world to be exposed to. You know that that 
that the, the global food available in the U.S. is giant. Um, you know, travel, maybe not during a pandemic, but travel uh, allows us to, you know, to taste things authentically in a lot of places. And I know French food captured you early, but why, why, why do you think it's still important? Why do you think it's still relevant to cooking in the U.S. in 2021? Mm-hmm. There are two reasons. They grow some of the best food product in the world. And they have for a long, long time. And they, their land produces, you know, their sea, their, their creeks and streams and waterways produce some of the best food in the world. And the only way to make great food, whether it's simply done or beautifully, you know, fancily done, is to start with great product. So, and, their tr- and the other reason is I feel strongly that the French people respect the table and the food and the wine so much that that love and care that goes into their cooking is shown so greatly by the end product that how can that not be inspiring? How can that not be last for ever? <laughs> Frankly, uh, you know, it's, it's, we have great food product here. Obviously I appreciate everything. And as you say, all over the world, there's great food product, but I think their tradition and respect for what they do, their their cooking and their tables just has a huge impact. Well, they learned a lot from the Italians, right? So, <laughs> and, and that Caterina de Medici was a very good queen for them, right? She was the queen, wasn't she? Yeah. Yes. No, that. So, but were, but but for 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 some reason it it the the focus in uh, in in French cooking is very particular. And I think just because. The cooking is so uh, generally homogeneous, regardless of regional specialization. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, it, that there is a focused ethic that they chase. It's about product and process. And as a culture, they're, they're given to codification that has has helped, you know, sort of like get building blocks to one generation to the next along the way. And it's interesting because we're old enough now to have seen a couple different versions of, well, you know, French cuisine is tired and it's dead. And then here's the new way, and here's the new way, and here's the new way. And yet we're talking about Cocovin and Bourguignon, you know, farmhouse dishes from 400 years ago mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that are still important and are still connectable. And very satisfying. And good to eat. I mean, yeah. good food. Yeah, you can't go wrong with <laughs> good food. It makes us all happy. And we all know how much we've missed it, as you said, over this last year, you know, just getting to have someone else cook for us, uh, go sit down at a table with friends and not have to do the dishes or have to do the serving or, you know, have to do the cooking. It's, 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 it's such a treat to get to go sit and just enjoy the table and your family or your friends, whoever you're with. I mean, I think I've not missed anything, you know, so much in this past year as that. And, you know, just being with your, through cooking, being with your family and friends. So that's what the table does for you. Well, and for those of us that, that like to cook and serve other people, the opportunity to do it is, uh, is a big deal. It's, it's so exciting. It's purpose. Yes. Yes. 
So if folks want to email us, they can reach us, foremanwolf at wypr.org. Ask us questions on this topic or any other food and wine related topic. Maybe even toss a little travel in there. And always happy to hear your stories. If you want to download this program or any other one of the programs, go to the podcast on the WYPR website, wypr.org, and look for the Foreman Wolf page. And there's a full menu of goodies there for you. To follow Chef Cindy Wolf on social media, you can follow me on Twitter as Chef Cindy Wolf and on Instagram and Facebook as Cindy Wolf. My Instagram is The Real Tony Foreman. Thanks so much for listening. Happy Sunday. <laughs>